welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Sorry, we had some technical difficulties there. <laughs> oh, gosh. This is supposed to be so much cooler than this. You're all laughing at me. That's how I know this isn't working. <laughs> Okay, Lane, there's a couple more lights. Turn them all off. Petey, turn the, the spots totally off. Does anybody go to blackout on the projector? No? Yes! Okay, one more. There's one more set. Welcome to Awaken, everybody, for dramatic effect. No? Try the bottom ones. Yeah, those ones, all the way off. Yes, now we're talking. Okay. Yep, totally did. Okay, everybody just pause. Close your eyes. Pretend that the last 30 seconds of your life did not happen. Okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. Esther, chapter 3, says this. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. The king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all of the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. When Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate for everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king, so it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that, w that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said, the money and the people are yours to do with as you see fit. And so on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Haman di dictated. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and, the seal and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers all to the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year, and the property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was issued as law in every province proclaimed to all the peoples and so that they would be ready to do, the, to their, to do their due duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers and it was proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. And then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Now the past few weeks we've studied this book of Esther and our studies left us uh, talking about things like beauty and how we, how we treat people of the opposite sex, um, community and trust and our need for one another. And last week, uh, navigating issues like um, that aren't black and white in scripture, but that, uh, that are difficult to navigate. Um, this week in the story of Esther, we come face to face with the reality that we live with, um, one that I'm sure we can all relate to, uh, a reality that the scripture speaks most commonly to in terms of darkness and light. 
of course, uh, this reality that I'm talking about is the, the issue of evil. Um, that there is, there remains to be um, evil things and an evil force in this world that opposes the things of God. Um, obviously, our attempt this morning was to uh, create something to that effect um, by turning off all of the lights. Um, I'm sure if, if you've ever been in a cave before where you literally can't see your hand in front of your face, um, there's something about darkness that just overwhelms you. And uh, ironically enough, today is the last day of the uh, haunted house in the balcony of our church, <laughs> which I'm grateful for. Um, but this story of Esther, uh, it's 2000, over 2,000 years old. But I think we know this story. We know this darkness. Uh, we know about the presence of evil in the world. Um, in 1943, there was a, uh, uh, as, this, as, as history tells us, um, in France, uh, groups of French men and women who would gather at train stations um, to watch their daughters and their sons and their mothers and their fathers and their coworkers, their neighbors, their friends, uh, board trains that uh, on the sides of the trains uh, was painted uh, and written charitable transport company in French. And so a lot of these people uh, didn't really know what was going on. And so they, without really putting up any kind of a fuss, um, said goodbye to their friends and family members, thinking that they were being transported by some charitable company. And of course, we know that this isn't true, um, but they were being transported to concentration camps where they would die. Um, this is a story that we know all too well. Um, it's, of course, recorded in the scriptures and in our history, and it happens every day in our lives. Uh, how do we live with this kind of evil in the world? How do we reconcile a good and loving God amidst this kind of evil and this kind of presence in our world? Uh, what kind of hope do we offer people that suffer? These are all, uh, I think, really good questions for us to be asking, and, and I think that Esther 3 puts us right smack dab in the middle of that. And so that's what we want to discuss this morning. That's what we want to um, delve into. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and, and as, as I do, um, don't, 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 be afraid, don't be a scared, everyone. Uh, the lights are going to come back on, and we'll, uh, we'll continue on here. But let's pray together. God of creation, um, God of light, we come to you this morning after reading a passage from scripture that is um, really troubling and really disturbing. Um, God, I ask that as we um, step into this issue, as we try to even um, put our heads around it and um, get a feel for uh, where we find you in the midst of pain and suffering and evil, I pray, God, that you would um, speak very clearly, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us and... Um, Give us something that we need. Uh, say something that we need to hear. Challenge our hearts in a way that we need to be challenged. God, I pray. By your, uh, in the name of your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Um, if you want a Bible, by the way, I forgot to tell you, there are some uh, in the back there. But um, So Esther, uh, Esther 3. Haman, who of course is the, the evil uh, character in this story, uh, decides to issue a decree, gets the king, coerces the king, really, to, to get him to do something that maybe he would, would or would not have done. We're not sure. 
But um, either way, on a single day, the plan was to annihilate an entire group of people. And so uh, we're kind of put right in the middle of this story, and, and we find that uh, there is an absolutely wicked, evil, um, demonic presence, uh, not only here in this story, but I think uh, we've, we've probably been a part of situations or seen that play out in our own lives. Um, and so in order to talk about uh, evil, in order to talk about suffering and those things that do exist in our world, I think we actually have to start and first talk about the kind of God that the scriptures reveal to us. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 21. Uh, that's in the New Testament, Romans 21. And uh, I'll read a passage. We'll start there. And as you turn there, and as we read it, I'll preface it by saying there are a few assumptions that I'm making here. Um, this is a massive issue. This is, uh, um, people have written large, very long books about this topic. Uh, people, I know of, of pastors who have done sermon series on this topic that have lasted weeks and weeks on end. And so we're not going to do an uh, exhaustive study on the problem of evil in the world. Um, but we're going to take it because I think Esther brings it to us. And so a couple of assumptions that I'm making off the bat... Uh, God has revealed to us in Scripture, um, of course, we, get, we, we find out who God is, and he's, we're told what he's like, um, but the, Jesus says when his disciples come and they say, show us the Father, we want to see the Father, we want to we uh, be in touch with, we want to know what the Father's doing, thinking, all those kinds of things, and Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, and so this idea, um, this theological concept that what we know about God, we know most fully or we know best because we have something, we have Jesus who has revealed God to us. And so when we see Jesus, we get a picture of who God is. Uh, some things that we learn from Jesus, of course, is that God is interested in sacrificing self, God's self, for the benefit of all. So if we know anything about God from Jesus, we know that. We know that God is able to heal and save. We know that God is able to spare and give back life. Now, there's a whole nother sermon there, like why doesn't he some, why, why does that happen sometimes and not others? That's not the, uh, where we're going to go today. But we do know that God is able to heal and save and spare and give back life. We know that God is more powerful than death. We know that we see that, of course, as Jesus is resurrected. Uh, the worst that the enemy has to offer, Jesus takes and beats. Um, and we know that God is all-loving, all-powerful, all, all of those alls. Uh, anything good that we experience in this world comes from and finds its source in God. So those are a few places that I'm, or a few things that I'm assuming, a place, places that I'm starting from. Now let's read Romans chapter 10, verse 21. This is Paul and he's quoting Isaiah and he says this, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So the picture is God holding out his hands to this group of people, inviting them to something, and what he receives back is a disobedient and obstinate people. It would appear that God finds God's self in a bit of a predicament here, right? Um, where God is offering himself to Israel, but Israel is not responding. Israel doesn't, uh, there's no reciprocity here. There's no God gives, but there's no give back. There's no responding. It, not, not with, certainly not with obedience, but rather... Uh, he says they respond with disobedience and obstinance. Right? I, I, I can think of a few children in my life who have responded in that way every now and again. Right? You offer, you, you, you give yourself to these lovely little creatures and they respond with disobedience and obstinance. Only, now, only every now and again. I don't know about yours. Mine are cherubs, you know. 
all the time. Right, Hadley? Hadley's here today. Because <laughs> the other ones are not. They're all sick. But here's the thing. Um, I want to ask this question. What does this reveal about God and the world that we live in, and what does this have to do with evil and suffering and darkness? We're going to come back to that. Let me say this first. Number one, if, if, if we're going to start anywhere and we're going to talk about this problem with evil and suffering, I would say this. It's important for us to understand that God is not the source of evil. God is not the source of evil. Rather, the free will and choices of humans and other free moral agents in the world are the genesis and the fuel for ongoing evil and suffering and darkness in the world. So God is not the source of evil and darkness. Rather, other things are. And I can't stress this enough. I can't stress how important this is because I think it really taps into um, theologically how we see God and how we understand the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And how you play this out, how you answer this question of how can there be in one hand an all-powerful, all-loving, all-encompassing God who can do those things, heal, save, stop terrible things from happening, and yet it doesn't happen at times. How do you reconcile those two things? And how you answer this question of what's the source or where does it come from or who's in control plays a huge factor in this. I think too many people are taught and led to believe that because God is in control of everything, and we understand this word control in a particular way, that because God is in control of everything, then whatever happens in the world, God is in on it. Right? If God's in control of everything, then whatever happens, every, down to every molecule, every atom, every decision that's made, every person, all of that stuff, God's in control, and so nothing is outside of his control. Therefore, whatever happens in the world has to be blessed by, agreed on, at least given permission to, by God. Now, for me, this causes some terribly, th this is terribly problematic, and it creates uh, some mental and some theological, uh, I think, quandaries and, and questions, at least. Um, but what's the other option? Right? If God's not in control, if we were to say that, then is it a free-for-all? Is it every person for themselves? Is it, uh, you know, God kind of like creates the old watchmaker uh, illustration, you know, God creates like a watchmaker and stands back and just lets the thing tick until it explodes or what? What's the other option is the question. Turn your attention back to Romans 10, I would say. What we find in Romans 10 is we have a God offering something to humanity and not getting a response to what he offered. What we have is God allowing for and God participating in the free will and choice that not only humans, but other moral agents have in this world. What we have in this instance where God says, I am offering myself to Israel, and what I get is disobedience and, and, and disrespect and so on and so forth. What we have, and this is key, what we have is a God participating in love. Because think about love, if you will, for just a moment. Uh, if you think about someone that you love or a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend or somebody, and you were to say, I love you to that person, and then you said uh, you, you had like some device that would harm them um, severely, and if they didn't say I love you back, you were going to inflict harm on them. Or if they didn't say I love you back, you were going to do something to them. Would that be love? What would that be? This is not a rhetorical question. Manipulation. 
Use. What else? Control. Domination. The, the, the point is, it's the antithesis of love because love requires something and love requires a choice. So if God is all loving and he's, and everything that love, the source of love is God, if that's true, then for God to participate in love means that God offers God's self to us and there is actually a freedom to choose. There's not a perceived freedom but there is an actual choice that we, you, have to respond to and answer back. Because love absolutely requires, fundamentally, choice. So what we have here in Romans chapter 10 is an interesting passage from Isaiah, but what it really taps into, what it really highlights, is the fact that God offers God's self to Israel, and they do not respond with obedience, with love, with this is how you were created to live and this is what I'm asking you to be in the world and yet they respond alternatively. So when we're talking about evil, when we're talking about suffering, when we read something like we read in Esther where on a single day there's a plan to annihilate an entire population of people and we're face to face with this problem of evil and suffering in the world, how do we answer it? I think we have to start for me, this is, this is critical. And, and yeah, you're getting a little bit of my take on this because I'm the one teaching this. And you may differ, but for me, I think we have to start by saying that God is not the source of evil. Now, we have to work out how that plays out. But briefly, what does that mean? For those of you who have experienced tragedy and darkness and evil, I would submit to you that God is not responsible for what happened to you. And by that, I mean, God did not will what happened. When millions of, of people were, were killed in the Holocaust, I don't believe that God willed that to happen. That was not in God's heart. That was not in God's plan. However you want to talk about it, however you want to frame whatever language you want to use, God is not the source of that. It can't be. It's antithetical to the nature of the very God that we talk about and, and is revealed to us in Scripture. So we have to figure out how to answer that differently. May I suggest that what happened wasn't in God's plan, but rather was the result of free, really truly free moral agents in the world. Certainly, I don't think we have to go too far to realize that you and I participate in this every day. Right? We make choices. You have made choices that result in suffering in maybe graduated forms for people's life. The decisions that we make, I choose, you choose, your parents have chosen, those decisions have real ramifications and real implications I don't believe we're puppets on a string. I believe that we can hold in tension the, the idea that God is yet at once, and I hate using the word, but it's the only word I, that, that I think says even close to what we're talking about. God is in control, and at the same time, there is a very real sense that the decisions we make matter and play themselves out in the world. 
I don't know if any of you have seen The, uh, the Last King of Scotland before. Uh, it's a movie about uh, Idi Amin, who was a dictator in Africa. And uh, I wouldn't recommend it um, unless you, well, I'll just leave it at that. I saw it, and after I watched it, I had this sinking, like, rock in the pit of my stomach because I felt like I had just seen evil embodied. Anybody ever been there? You ever seen a movie or a film or, or uh, a play or seen something in real life where you, where you, it was like you just came face to face with evil in the world. I would submit to you when that happens, you're coming face to face with a force that is real and people that enable that in creation. So, we don't have to go too far to realize that you and I play a part in this, but I think there's, there's, there's more to this. And if we're talking about moral agents, so if, if, if the result of evil in the world has to do with people or free moral agents in the world, I think there's a couple of ways to look at it. Turn to Daniel chapter 10, if you would. Daniel chapter 10. Now, this is, of course, a book about the lions and the, the den, and uh, I think this has even got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in it too, doesn't it? Yep, sure does, chapter 3. Rack, Shack, and Benny's in there. Daniel and the lion's den's in there. But there's this brilliant little passage that I think gives us a window into something that's really, really important for us to remember as we're talking about evil and suffering in the world. Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 says this. Then he continued. This is, a, this is a, an angelic kind of being that has visited Daniel. And it says, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. So right off the bat, we get Daniel praying, 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 and an and angelic being visits Daniel and says, listen, Daniel, Daniel, you've been praying, and you, your prayers have been heard, and I have been sent on behalf of you know, Yahweh, the God of creation, to you. But look what it says next. The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, another angelic being, one of the chief princes came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Do you, do you see what's happening here? An angelic being says to Daniel, Daniel, your prayers have been heard and I was sent, I was dispatched, I was, I'm coming on behalf of Yahweh to you to attend to the prayers that you have offered. But I was detained by the prince of Persia. Not a real prince of Persia here. Daniel's apocalyptic, right? So he, what he's talking about is a demonic force. He's talking about something other than human that has delayed him from coming and attending to Daniel. And then another angel comes and, and helps out and, and sends the king of Persia back, packing or however that all works out in, in that realm, and he says to Daniel, now the, the reason I bring this up is to say this, we are not alone. As we think about evil and suffering in the world, yes, we make choices and we, we participate in the, the invitation of things that are not of God in the world. We do that, you and I, human beings. But there is also a very real sense. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. He says, we don't, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of, of another realm. I'm not trying to freak anybody out here. I'm not trying to play, you know, Halloween tricks on you. But there is a very real sense. There is a reality that we do not see that is absolutely 100%, I believe, real. 
And it has to do with other moral agents in the world, being angels and demons, those who are non-human but not God, in between us and God, we call them angels, and demonic forces, angels used to be, who now wage war against one another for you, for me, for creation. Now again, we can't do a whole study on angels and, and demons and, and all of that stuff, but suffice it to say, we are not the only free moral agents influencing the world around us. There are powers and principalities fighting on behalf of Yahweh and Satan, the adversary as he's called in scripture. So as we think about evil and suffering in the world, and we try to answer the question, how, does, how, how is there a loving God who, can, who is all-powerful, all of those things, can do anything, everything, and yet, how do we answer the question of evil and suffering in the world? We participate in it. Angels and demons participate in it, which leads me to one final thought or question, and I'll see if I can set it up with this illustration. Um, as we talk about this, it's, I think it's really important that we have some information uh, that we're working with um, Anybody seen Saving Private Ryan before? Uh, it's a movie about World War II. Uh, again, the, the Nazis and, and the Allies are fighting. And at the end of this movie, there's this one, there's this one particular scene, and the whole thing kind of comes to this fulcrum, this, this point in the, in, the, in the film, where the Allies know that if the Germans are going to win this particular uh, battle on this front, they have to get this one town, because in this one town there is the, the lone bridge that crosses this particular river. And it's the only one left. All the other ones have been bombed. And so if the, if the Germans are going to move forward and, and go this way, they have to get this town. They have to win this town so they have access to this bridge. And so the Allies set up, and they know, they know that they're coming because this is the only place for the enemy who's trying to advance. This is how they will do it, and it's the only option that they have. So they, they set up their, their troops and everything, and there's this huge epic battle, and, and they save, and, uh, save the day. But the point is, the Allies who are fighting against the enemy know exactly what the enemy is going to do because it's, it's, it's the only option they have in this war. I want to submit to you this morning that as, as you and I, if you follow Jesus, it's important for us to know a little bit about the enemy that is real. Uh, this, this sort of lined up with Halloween. I didn't really mean it to, but be that as it may. A couple of things that I think I want, I'd like to point out about the enemy as far as scripture, uh, in just three verses, I'll, I'll, I won't ask you to turn there, I'll just... Um, give you the, the references. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says this about our adversary, our enemy. It says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So this enemy that we have uh, is, that's real does not show up and say, hey, you know what? I would love to uh, wreck your marriage, take down your family, and ruin all hope in your life. That's what I'd like to do today. How do you feel about that? That's not, of course, how the enemy is going to show up. There's this, uh, I, I'm a good uh, chick flick guy. I have girls. I live with four girls. You know this. So I love a good chick flick, and uh, one of my favorites is Ever After. Anybody ever seen that one with Drew Barrymore? It's the Cinderella story retold, like two girls. Awesome. Great. <laughs> I feel like a... I'm okay with that. I'm okay with my, you know, my manhood. I can watch those things. But there's this great scene at the end where, where Drew Barrymore, she gets the dress. She's got this beautiful, I mean, just gorgeous like costume, and it's got these butterfly wings, and it's all glittery and glowy and sequins everywhere, and the light's just shining down perfectly on it. And she goes to the ball, of course. Her stepsisters are there. She's not invited, but she knows the prince, and he's trying to find her. You know the Cinderella story. So she shows up at the ball, and it's like, whoa, and the, you know, the water's part, 
and it's like the Exodus. Oh, no, wait, it's, it's Cinderella. And, the, and, and, you know, she comes up, and the lights are on her, and she's, like, walking down, and the prince catches her gaze, and it's this beautiful moment. And then one of the stepsisters, of course, wrecks the whole deal. She runs out, and she just, like, rips one of the wings off, and it's like, <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci made this costume in the movie. So this is a big deal, right? Yeah, Da Vinci, right? Um, and she's like, this is not who you think it is. It's an imposter. She is not a princess, you know, Nicole de Longre. She's not who you think she is. She's somebody else. I've watched it a few times. <laughs> With the French accent to boot. And the point is, she says, she is masquerading. She's masquerading. She has a mask on. She's not who she says she is. So when the enemy shows up, the scriptures tell us that it will not be a red, you know, spandex-laden pitchfork dude saying, I'm here to wreck your life. It will be very subtle and very nuanced and very hard to detect. This is the enemy that we are told is our adversary in scripture. John 10.10, Jesus says that I have come to give life and life to the full. And then he goes on and he says, the thief, but the thief, the enemy, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Friends, I'm not going to do this, but I would guarantee you that if we went around the room and said, tell me your story where something in your life, a relationship, a friendship, a family member, has been destroyed we're looking back, there's a wake of destruction in our lives. This is exactly what the scriptures tell us the enemy is about. Stealing, killing, and destroying. 1 Peter 5 says that, that uh, our enemy is like a lion who is on the prowl. Have you, you guys watched Discovery Channel? I mean, have you ever seen how lions hunt? I mean, it's, of course, it's epic, right? I mean, they like slink around in, the, in the, the elephant grass, by the way, I learned that when I was in Africa. These really, really tall grasses, and you can't see them. You literally can't see them. And then all of a sudden, there's this you know, lovely little gazelle who's just you know, nibbling on his lunch, and then bam, and he's gone, dead, eaten by a lion. It's horrible. <laughs> this is a metaphor that, that, that the scripture writers determined useful to tell us about our enemy. I tell you all these things because I'm your pastor and I love you. And I want what's best for you. I want what's best. I want what God wants for me. I want what God wants for you. And, and, it's, and it's terribly unfortunate because I think there are polar opposites on this deal. We... Th- I think often we get, look for a demon behind every rock. Like if something goes wrong in the service, oh, it's got to be attack. Satan's out to get us. Like the lights didn't work. It's got to be, a, it's, a, it's an attack. It's Satan. It's a, you know, and these people, I mean, I've, I've, I've met them. I, know, I can see the guy's face. He went to Grace Church Roseville when I was a kid. And it was just like, everything's an attack from Satan. You know, and there's a demon around everywhere. And it's like, if, you're, if you didn't get your parking spot, Satan's out to get you. And it's like, Come on, really? Like, okay, let's, let's find a middle ground here about, yes, there are real, like, adversarial movements of the enemy to oppose the things of God. And sometimes we get caught in the midst of that, and we might call that spiritual warfare. Fine, that's real. But then there's the other side, the other end of the spectrum, which is total naivety. 
where we're just completely oblivious. Like we live life, we walk through life, and we're just like, yeah, you know, it's cool, it's cool. God's good. Jesus, resurrection. And there's no mention of, of here's, here's the thing. A couple weeks ago, I was talking with Laura about Awaken, and I'll be perfectly honest with you guys. I feel in my spirit, like, I have this sense that we could keep doing what we're doing, and it would be fine. But I have this sense that there's more for us, that God has more for us, for this community. I just sense it in my spirit. I don't know, what, I don't know how to explain it to you, but that's just the sense that I get. And the closer and closer we get to that, I feel like the more and more and more I feel opposition. I sense it in my spirit. I, I, it's it's, it's r- random moments where I think, it's like we're just pushing, it's like we're just banging our heads against the wall trying to get something or trying to do something, and it's just, I just sense opposition on all kinds of fronts. Every person in my, my house has been sick in the last seven days. Now, could that be that it's flu season and there's lots of germs out there and my kids, uh, you know, share snot with some other kid at the playground? Yeah, it's totally possible, 100%. But I don't, I don't rule out the possibility because the story of Esther tells us that there is a real enemy that opposes the things of God and the people of God in very real and tangible ways. And so... I think it's important that we talk about this. I think it's important that we recognize this. Now, as I close, I want to say this. There, uh, there is a hope, and hope that this is not how it will always be. There is a hope that the scripture offers us that this is not how it will always be. That the things that we have seen done to children the things that we have seen done to other humans, to humanity, the world as we experience it now, broken and torn and in the middle of a, seemingly in the middle of a, of a, a war of sorts, that this is not how it will always be. But the scriptures offer that there is a God who, a God who not only allows for true love in relationship, but also is a God who endures the worst that the enemy has to offer as a result of offering free will and choice in relationship. That God has gotten involved, that God has made a way, that God has reconciled that which has gone wrong and conquers it through resurrection and the worst that the enemy has to offer and offers a new way of being in the world, a new way of doing life in the world. And the gospel writers call this the good news. And hopefully as we gather every Sunday morning, this is what we offer one another. That there is a hope that goes beyond the things that we experience that are not of God, that are, that are not in line with and in tune with the song that God has been playing and singing from the beginning of creation. And of course, this is what communion is about. 1 John 2 says this, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command but an old one, which you, have, you had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, and yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. 
So whatever John's about to say to whoever he's writing, Christians, presumably, he says, I want to remind you of something that we have seen in him and that now the world sees in you. And it's this. That darkness is passing. And the true light is already shining. That's the hope of resurrection. That the darkness is passing and that a, a true light is already shining in the world. And John says, we, see, we have seen it in Jesus and now the world sees it in you. And so friends, as, as we close and as we move towards communion, I just want to, I want to offer an encouragement. I want to offer uh, a, a, a word of hope huh, on the back end of a, maybe a bit of a downer kind of, wow, okay, thanks for that kind of teaching. That the people of God in the world, John says that this thing, this light, this resurrection hope actually emanates into the world through you and through me, those who follow Jesus and belong to the church. And so I want to offer a word of hope that this is the, this is the, this is the beauty and the joy and the, the challenge of the gospel and the invitation to the church. To live into this by the power of the Spirit in living through us. And that the world that we live in, as much as it is broken and as much as we face difficult things and see things that no person should ever see, this is not how it will always be. Right? This is, the, this is the, the pinnacle of the greatest stories, that there is something on the other side of darkness, that a new day is coming. And this is how the scriptures talk about it. So I'm going to ask Ben to come and... Uh, He's going to play a bit uh, as we participate in communion. And I'll just remind you that communion is about community. Communion is about relationship. That's why Paul gets so upset in 1 Corinthians 11. Not because people were... I think Paul's primary issue was that people were coming to this table in a way that, that defaced community and uh, extorted other people. And so he says, when you come to this communion table, uh, you do so in a way that honors the nature of it, which is about community. It's about relationship. It's about relationship with God, and it's about relationship with one another. And so uh, as you come, uh, I'll invite you to just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. Uh, there is wine on the right and juice on the left. There's gluten-free in this cup and one upstairs, uh, if that is your cup of tea, so to speak. Um, but... I invite you to come and uh, participate in this. And as you do, remember, uh, remind yourself, recommit uh, to the thing that this represents, which is the body and blood of Jesus shed for us. So let me pray, and then I'll invite you to come. God, we want to thank you for this day, for uh, amidst a world that oftentimes is really, really depressing and broken, uh, there is a word of hope that's offered uh, through the scriptures and through the person of Jesus uh, and his resurrection on the cross, uh, from, from the cross and from death. God, I pray that as John spoke, that we see this truth in you as it was revealed, Jesus, and now in us. I pray that the world would see this truth of hope in us. And as we uh, stand against those things that are not of you, God, and stand against the enemy that is not of you, I pray, God, that by your spirit you would empower us. That the, the, the power that raised you from the dead, Jesus, would would flow through this body and through your church in the world. We thank you for this reminder of communion. 
uh, which brings us back to the center, which brings us back to the beginning uh, of the story to say that it's about you, Jesus. It's about your blood and your body that was broken for us and shed for us. And so we do so with remembrance of what you sacrificed for us and saying yes to you again uh, as your bride. We pray in your name. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.